You're listening to the Gateway Franklin Church Podcast. To learn more about Gateway Franklin Church, including our service times here in Franklin, Tennessee, visit us online at gatewayfranklin.com. And now, here is this week's message. In two days, we celebrate the 247th anniversary of the signing of the Declaration of Independence. Now, there's a reason why it's not called the Document of Independence, right? Paper didn't make anybody free, right? But it was what captured the Declaration. So this is how the actual Declaration of Independence begins after what you're probably so familiar with around the preamble. But it says, the unanimous Declaration of the 13 United States of America. One of the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with one another and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and of nature's gods entitle them. A decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to the separation. Now you'll know this. And we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And then the writers go on to document 27 grievances against the crown, basically saying enough is enough, it's time for a new crown. But the signing of the Declaration of Independence didn't start the Revolutionary War. The first, war was, the first battle was fought almost, almost a year earlier than that. The signing of the Declaration of Independence didn't end the war. They had to fight for what they had declared. The Declaration of Independence, what it did was it marked a new identity. They lived and fought differently than from that point forward. They lived and they fought like free people. For the follower of Christ, salvation then is our declaration of independence. It is, although the, 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 the battle has been fought and won for us on the cross, there is a moment in time when we kind of come connected that, that what we're living for isn't producing what we longed for. And, and you have a choice to make when you come to that realization. The idea of maybe trying harder or trying it differently, or a lot of things we try. Well, we're gonna try it with a, a different house or a different spouse. Or we're gonna go back to school or we're gonna change jobs. There's a lot of things that end up happening when you kind of come to this realization that life isn't what you thought it was going to be. And then we look for all the things that we can do to change that and yet salvation is the thing that Christ changes. And then when we connect with the freeing power of Christ, when we get it, we can live, we live differently. And I'm not just talking about living differently from we, we make different choices. I'm talking about we live differently because we live as free people. Now, as often said, freedom isn't free. Christ paid that freedom. Paul tells us this, though, of why he did it. Galatians 5.1 says it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. It's, it's so plain. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. 
That's how much he thinks of freedom. It is, it is for freedom's sake that he set us free. He wanted us free. We couldn't free ourselves. We had to be freed by him. He wants us to live in freedom. And he sets us free. Stand firm then, he says, and don't let yourself be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. If you are a free people in Christ, do not allow the things that have encumbered you and enslaved you prior have any kind of domain in your life because you were not built, created for that and those. You're created for this and him. But when you've been a prisoner for most of your life, you end up having to unlearn some things before you learn some things. When you've been a prisoner most of your life, you end up having to unlearn some things before you can some learn some things. And it's this freedom framework that we're gonna study our Psalm this morning. But unless I miss my guess, you have never viewed Psalm 23 through the lens of freedom. And yet Psalm 23, it's right there, really, really plain. So Shepherd David is now King David. And he's in a reflective mood and he is in an encouraging mode. He finds himself right where God told him that he would be when God told him that when he was a kid. But a lot of life has gone on between then and there. A lot of zigs and zags and twists and turns that he would not have known back as a boy tending sheep. And now that he's king, he reflects over that time. And although the time wouldn't have been probably how he would have written it out. Anybody else feel like you've written your life really well? Probably not how we would have drawn it up at the beginning. David sees probably this is not how he would have drawn it up at the beginning. And yet he finds himself at the place that God told him it would be. That you're going to be king. And instead of him framing his life in the pain and the hardship, he frames it in the freeing power of God. So where we find ourselves, the temptation is to look over what's got you to this place and you definitely can point out all the places where you have been wounded and disappointed and you can pick out all the people who wounded you and disappointed you. You can look at all the ways in which you think things should have been different. David is charting us a course here looking back over his life and writing Psalm 23 as a way to bring us some freedom from how we end up getting attached or tackled by our past. Um, what is proven true, um, what God proved true to David is what I taught you in the opening week of this series, that God's past faithfulness cements his future faithfulness regardless of present circumstance. God's past faithfulness cements his future faithfulness regardless of present circumstances. Now, Psalm 23 is definitely a comforting psalm. I can't tell you how many hospitals I would have read that in, how many hospice centers I would have read it, um, how many funerals I have read it. And so I'm just asking you to hear it though today in a different tone. I think the deep breath that Psalm 23 brings us really is this deep breath of freedom. I think that's where the deep breath comes from, not just from a um, poetic cadence as it's read. So I think Psalm 23 is a freedom declaration from at least three things. These are the three I'm gonna deal with today. Anxiousness, fear, and uncertainty. 
All right, we're going to talk about four freeing things around anxiousness, two around fear, one about uncertainty, so you can count along the way and you're not worried that pastor's only preaching one sermon today, so he's going to try to get everything in, all right, that he's going to go over time, which I still might do. Um, here's the overarching theme today is that freedom depends on God's, on God dependence. Freedom depends on God's, on God dependence. That's the overarching theme. Here's the first one. There's freedom from anxiousness in God independence because my shepherd is personal. My shepherd is personal. Here's how it starts reading. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his namesake. So whenever God wants to introduce himself in the most personal way, he does so with the word Yahweh, the Lord, the Yahweh is my shepherd. Yahweh literally means I am, I always have been, and I always will be. And every time I've heard that kind of uh, fleshed out for God's name, I am, I always have been, I always will be, my nature says, will be what? <laughs> I am what, usually there's other words that come after that, I am, right? I am this, I am that. And when, so when you look at it, when God describes himself, it would be that in a shorthand way, I'm everything. I mean, there's no way for me to outline all the names of God in scripture, but here are a few, right? So we know God as Jehovah Jireh. He calls himself this, the Lord provides. We have Jehovah Rapha, the God who heals. Jehovah Nisi, God is my banner or my deliverer or my protector. Jehovah Shalom, God is my peace. Jehovah Raha, God is my shepherd. And each time he introduces himself and other Yahweh names, it's always in context. It's not like sitting people in a classroom, writing on a board, and this is my name. Right? We, we walk into class in first grade and the teacher wrote on the board, this is my name. Right? This is, he doesn't teach his names in that way. All these names gets introduced into context where the person needed God to be those things, right? So when he says, I am, he's saying, I am everything. And for the record, here's a bunch of lists of who I am and circumstances when he steps in, his character steps into those moments. And in those moments, we realize who he is. We can't know who God is in a vacuum. We know God in context. We know God in circumstance. We, go, we know God in hardship. We know God in disappointment. We know God in enthusiasm. We know God in, in celebration. These are the ways we know God. We know God in the context of our lives. It's not an academic exercise, although you can chase this stuff academically. But once it goes from here to here, you go, oh, that's who God is. That's who he is. So I think it was last Sunday or the Sunday before I, I gave you the, the knowing God paradox. The knowing God paradox. God makes himself known to us. There is no other way to know God. If you know God at all, whatever you know of God, you know because he has revealed that to you. Yes, again, you can chase some of this self down, but revelation is a lot different than understanding, right? There's an understanding of who God is and there's an aha moment of who God is, right? And God reveals himself to us. Second piece of this paradox is that we can know God. Plenty of people go, how do you know God? How can you know a mist? How can you know a, a mystique? How do you, how do you, there's no way to know God because God is just like this fog that seems to have moved from here out over the congregation. I'm wondering if my vision's blurry today. It's because <laughs> there's haze everywhere. All right. 
But the truth of scripture that what it teaches and it pounds and it pounds and it pounds is that we can know God. You can know God. You can know God. But the paradox kind of fits in is that we can always know more about God. As much as I know about God, as much as you know about God, it's not a checkbox going, well, now I know God. That'd be like after 32 years of being married to Gina, go, well, yeah, I know Gina. Next, right? There's always more. I learned something today. I, I won't. I guess she's telling. Are you? Are you? Yeah. Okay. You see her? She's patting. That means that's pastor's wife speak for move on. <laughs> Keep going. There's always, there's always more that we can know about God than we never, will never know all there is about God. That seems like that it's, a, it's counterproductive. Well, if there's always more to know about God, but I'll never know all there is to know about God, then should I maybe stop trying to pursue knowing God because I'll never get to the end of knowing God. And that's just how us Westerners think that everything has an end. There's a starting point, there's an ending point. And once I get to the ending point, next, next, next thing, next thing, next thing, next thing. But this is the beauty of God, that as much as I can know about God, as much as there is to know about God, there's always going to be more to know about God. There's no, there's no way that I will be bored about God. I, I had someone, I don't know, I remember how old I was. I was in high school or something, and they were asking about heaven and hell. And, um, and it was like, well, why would you want to go to heaven? That seems boring to me. I don't know. I don't know enough about heaven to know whether it would be boring or not by how I would define it now. But I, I know enough to know that if, if I'm in love with God and there's always more to know about God, then even in heaven there will be things we are learning about who he is and the context of being there. Um, so then, how do you feel about what you know about God now? And here's the last piece of this paradox is what we know about God in the moment is enough of God for the moment. Right, because if it's not, then this is very de-incentivizing to me. That if I can never know enough about God, I will never know all there is about God. No matter how much I try. And I find myself in a situation where I feel lost and by myself. Do I sit there and go, well, if I just knew more about God, this would be different. And I believe the answer is, you know enough about God for that moment. No matter how much or how little you think you know about God, he so wants you to know who he is. And if you find yourself in a context where you are needing to know who he is, this is the context in which he has revealed himself throughout all of scripture, is in the context of our need and our desire for him. And someone needs to put that down, write that down somewhere because you don't need to forget that. Less than a year after my mom died, my dad had five bypasses. So I, I, I didn't know you could do five. Um, right until my father-in-law had six last year. So I guess they're trying to one-up one another, but my dad's been gone for so long, I don't know why he tried. <laughs> so, you know, my mom was always the rock. She was on the hospital and, you know, and anyway, so they got dad on a gurney ready to go to surgery. I'm with my dad in the hallway ready to take surgery, right? And he's all loaded up, all the stuff. And, um, but the Lord had convinced me earlier that my father had a saving relationship with God. And that's another story um, my dad was the kind of guy, I've told you, if some of you have been around a while, my dad was kind of like, well, if you made your bed, you lie in it. So whatever he had done in, in his life, he just felt like that was done and nothing could be done about that. And um, so in his eyes, um, God was mom's God, God was my God, God wasn't his God. 
And he was always living under the umbrella of us. Okay, this is how my dad felt. And because we had so many salvation conversations in hospitals, um, I had family members that was pushing me to have that conversation before my, fa- my father at that age went under five bypasses. And I just said I wasn't going to have it because the Lord had told me to treat him like he was um, a son of God. So now I'm standing out ready to pray for him, and I didn't really know what to do, and this is what I did. I leaned down to his ear, and I said, Dad, God, God isn't just mom's God, and God isn't just my God. He is your God, too. Boy, he just started crying. His tears just started rolling down his eyes. So to tell you how hard of a cuss my dad was, though, after surgery and everything was done, I felt like I fulfilled my obligation to the Lord. I said, Dad, but there's something about this that your son would really like to hear you say that you love Jesus. And his answer was, I don't love the alternative. So that's, <laughs> I promise, that, that, was my, that was my dad right there. I don't love the alternative. Okay, dad, next subject. Next, <laughs> next subject. We can, we can be free from anxiety, from anxiousness, because we have a personal shepherd. Personal. David, David speaks of him not as a shepherd, not as a um, job position, but as my shepherd. Here's the second one. There's freedom from anxiousness and God dependence my shepherd provides. He provides. 1B says, I lack nothing. Verse 2, he makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. English fails us in understanding this passage um, because when we think about lacking We don't like anything. There probably wouldn't be many hands in the room that would say that you find yourself in a position where you don't lack anything, right? Because we define lack by what we want, right? We define lack what we want. And I can make you a pretty long list of things I want that I do not have currently, right? Could you do that, right? And so when you read this, the Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. We kind of sticks in the throat a little bit, okay? But the terrain of the Middle East is not like the terrain of Middle Tennessee, all right, so I drive home due west here um, from church, and I drive on a road called Coleman Road. Coleman Road is full with still some farms and some fields, and we see, you know, those big circular straw bales, hay bales, right, throughout the Always fascinates me, right? Always looks like an alien has shown up, right? Which seems more, more believable these days, apparently. And, and, um, and they're scattered all over the place, and then, you know, but the train in the Middle East, wouldn't, you wouldn't see that at all, right? It was, it was desert, it was, it's wasteland. It's hills, it, the terrain is not anything that you would say someone could be in the middle of all that and say, well, I lack nothing, all right? So how, how would a sheep in that context where there is nothing readily available, right? water is not readily available, vegetation not readily available, shade not readily available, shelter not readily available. So when he says the, the shepherd though is, has, contains all of these things, the resource the resource of God is all that we need. And so uh, the, this context, he would say that you might not see what you think you need or want, and yet when I am your personal shepherd, I have access to the ability to, the resources of, anything that you would ever find yourself in need of in the moment. He is a personal shepherd that is our resource. We can, we can have, we can be freed from this 
constant anxiousness if you're getting close to retirement age. It's, it's do I have enough for retirement? Um, if you're in between jobs, do I have enough severance to make it to the next point? If you had another child, how am I going to do? And I'm not saying that the Lord has backfills, and I'll get this later in the message, that backfills all of my decisions. But what I'm saying is I, I can live free from this anxiousness of lack because the shepherd is with me. This personal shepherd is everything and every resource that I would ever need. There is freedom when we depend on God for our provision. Can anybody testify to that? That there, you have experienced freedom depending on the providence and the provision of God. Um, it is just I mean, boy, I could just tell you even my own little life with Gina, the story after story of God's provision where there, that was not there, right? Empty stuff. Okay. Thank you. Thank you, God. So there's freedom from anxious and God independence. The third one is my shepherd restores. The verse says he refreshes my soul. And that refresh is a great word here. And yet it doesn't capture all of the Hebrew which would mean restore my soul. And the restore my soul here carries the connotation of going after. It's the connotation of going after and then in response, me turning around. So when he says he refreshes my soul for our context of not being physical sheep, it is the idea that the shepherd, our, our, our father, he chases after us because he knows where we're heading is leading us to more lack. We're actually being, we're actually falling, going away, away from resource. We're going away from shelter. We're going away from water. We're going away from sustenance. But he refreshes our soul. He comes after us and gets us. And our response is that we turn around. This is what repentance means. Repentance literally means to turn around. Now, if you've been in church world, you think repentance means at some point in time, I hit my knees, I cry, I say a prayer, and I've repented. Well, that's been part of my experience, but, but the, the bulk of my experience between coming to Christ and salvation is that I turned around. That I've, that I've rec oh, my eyes are open. This is heading away from God. This is heading away from everything that I actually want and need. So he comes after me. We don't, not one person in this room came to Christ on their own. No one watching online, no one in the overflow today, no one comes to Christ alone. He has come after you in some form or fashion. And it's really, really healthy to review how he's done that sometime. What circumstance did he use in your life to turn you around? What individual did he use in your life to turn you around? This, we can be free from this anxiousness of even, where am I going, what am I doing? Because he comes after us to refresh us, to restore us, because he comes after us to turn us around. He restores our soul. Shepherd isn't a casual metaphor to describe God. It is a very specific and aptly description that he chooses for himself. He's a shepherd, and he calls us his sheep. Here's one more on the anxiousness. There's freedom from anxiousness in God dependence because my shepherd guides. It says he guides me along the right paths for his namesake. He guides me along the right paths. Did you ever feel, do you ever, ever feel like you're going in the wrong direction sometimes? Wrong choice, wrong direction? He guides me along the right paths. I used to get lost a lot um, before GPS. 
Um, it's better than that. My definition of GPS is Gina positioning satellite. <laughs> I contend in our younger days, we would have been a force on the amazing race. Because I, I can solve puzzles and I can drive fast. And you can drop her in any city in the world, blindfolded, give her a two-minute look at a map, and she'll know exactly where to go, where everything is. She, she can get it done for us. David's point here is that we aren't left blindly to navigate life on our own. And isn't that where some of the most anxious feelings that you have is wondering, are you making the right choice? Are you going in the right direction? What if I should have zagged when I zigged back there, right? Then we make a choice, then we live questioning whether or not that choice was correct. Well, I hate to break it to you, but there, here are two things here. One is, um, as smart as you are, you will rarely have all the information you need at the moment you need it. The smartest person in the room in here, you will never have all the information you need before you make some big decisions in your life. Here is, I hate to break it to you, number two. Masses and mobs rarely go in the right direction. You can call, a, like there's a flock of sheep, or it can be called a herd of sheep, but there's also actually another uh, designation for that, for a group of sheep. It's called a mob. You could have a mob of sheep. Um, Matthew 9 aptly describes Jesus when he looks out over a group of people. He said they were helpless and harassed like sheep without a shepherd. Mobs and masses rarely make the right choices. They get wrapped up in the moment and they go chasing off in one direction. And when you don't have an idea of what to do, it is so easy to get swept up into that movement. Well, they must know. Um, Annie, um, Annie, you remember this? You were, I think it was kindergarten or first grade. We we're still living in Georgia and there was an Easter egg hunt down the street in Woodstock, downtown Woodstock. And so we lined up all the kids, right? They hide them as well as we did. They're all out in the field. You just look at them, see them, right? There's no, it's not an Easter egg hunt. It's an Easter egg pickup is really, what, is really what any of this is, right? And so they had all the kids lined up and they had them all facing this direction, which meant they were all going to walk around and, and she was at the back of the line. We're, right? That's the, that's the curse of we're. W, now she married a bender. So now she's, I think that was part of the motivation, Brady. She just got... She jumped the class. Well, Annie saw everybody going in this direction. And she went, ain't going to be no eggs that way. So she turns around and goes this direction. And she fills her basket and everything she could carry. And then a very de-incentivizing uh, country we live in. She had to give, oh, she had to give them away because, because she had too many eggs and some kids didn't get enough. But you understand my point. You follow the masses. You follow the mob. You're just going to end up with leftovers. But we have, we have a shepherd that guides us along the right path. I read this line this week. It is better to ask God to direct your steps than it is to correct your mistakes. Isn't that powerful? It's better to ask God to direct your steps than it is to correct your mistakes. There is freedom from anxiousness when we depend on a shepherd who guides us. All right, so he's personal, he provides, he restores, he guides those around anxiousness. He's personal, he provides, he restores, he guides. All right, here's two around, the, uh, around fear. There's freedom from fear in God dependence. My shepherd guards, guards us. So David says, even though I walk through the valley, the, 
walk through the darkest valley. I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Interesting that David, after four verses, takes a turn. Up until now, he's describing to us the shepherd. Here he talks to the shepherd. Do you notice that? Even though I walk through the darkest valleys, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. This is how close, for you are with me. Um, David would have seen these phenomenon throughout that terrain of these very narrow valleys, having to get from one place to the, to the next, where, you know, when you get something so narrow, the sun will only hit the bottom of that valley at certain times of day and for a short amount of time. He, underst- he understands this. He understands the darkness of it. He understands the danger of it. He, he, you, you, you can hear the shepherd of David coming out, but it's interesting. He doesn't say when you go through a dark valley, what does he say? Darkest valley. So he's not even throwing out this general thing about God as shepherd. He's being very, 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 very specific here. Even though you walk through the darkest valley, he says, I will fear. No. It's another declaration. I mean, I think this is why he turns it to, I, like, I've been through some darkest valleys and I've probably still got some darkest valleys in front of me. And what I learned through those darkest valleys, I'm gonna put in place in the next darkest valleys. I will fear, I will fear no evil. Why? He tells us why I'll fear no evil. Because you're with me, because you're present. You're present. And your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Now, this is an interesting nuance in this passage. There are 26 Hebrew words before the phrase, for you are with me. And there are 26 Hebrew words after that phrase. So Holy Spirit, David, whoever, to me, it's a very bold statement about what happens when we're in the middle. The darkest valleys, we always identify them as the one we're in right now. The middle of something. So when he talks about a, a, a rod and staff right here, it would have been two utensils a shepherd would have carried. One would have, been, would have had a stick with like an orb on the end. Sometimes they would embed some metal in the top. And this was a weapon. I mean, predators come after sheep. Easy targets. Can't run very fast. Tastes pretty good. (laughs) And he doesn't put them just in a gate or it is a personal tool of hand-to-hand kind of combat in protection of that sheep. You, you can't, I can't protect you with a rod if I'm not near you. When their shepherd's near us, he's not just an observer. He's not sitting up 10,000 feet going, mm, boy, look out around that corner. I hope they see that. There is protection. The staff would have been, right, what you would, what you would envision. The crook on the staff, the staff, that crook on the staff was for a variety of things. It could have been a tap on the shoulder, right? He wouldn't have used the rod to, to drive the sheep. He would have used the staff. It's not a weapon. It doesn't look formidable. It was something that guided. It was one, it was, it, the crook would have been where for most of the sheep he could have pulled out of harm. This is the kind of shepherd we have, someone that's close to us, someone that is not out there to try to drive us somewhere to intimidate us with his rod. He is there to guide us with his staff. The rod is to intimidate everybody else trying to intimidate us. 
The staff is a, a guider. I, I don't have to live. David's saying, I've been in plenty of places where I could have been afraid, and no doubt fear still happens, right? But when fear paralyzes you or keeps you from moving somewhere, that's the bad part of fear. Not all fear is bad, right? Fear is a pretty good motivator, right? I mean, some of you got through school because you were afraid, <laughs> right? I did really good in school because I was afraid, right, uh, of my parents. So fear... Fear can be a really, really good thing, but when fear becomes a demotivator and keeps you paralyzed, that's when fear is not a good thing, right? He said, I will fear, and I will fear nothing coming against me. So we can't have freedom from fear with God dependence because he guards. Here's number six. There's freedom from fear in God dependence because my shepherd oversees and overflows. Oversees and overflows. He said, you repair a table before me in the presence of my enemies, you anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. I love it when God demonstrates his strength by eliminating the problems in my life. Don't you love it when God does that? Don't you love when God just kind of flicks stuff away? Um, he just doesn't do it all that often, does he? He just, <laughs> he just doesn't seemingly flick stuff away many times. So the power that God demonstrates isn't eliminating hard situations. His power is when he walks us through those circumstances and he scoffs when he scoffs at the ill intent of our enemies. Scoffs at it. That's prepares a table before me and my enemies. People are out to get me. They're out to undermine me. They're out to do this. They're out to do that. And the shepherd scoffs at them. <laughs> It is a dismissive, what exactly do you think you're up to? How profitable do you think you're actually going to be into this circumstance? That, those are my sheep. The story, the Old Testament story, this flashes to me is Esther's story and her uncle Mordecai and Haman is out to just have Mordecai hung. I'm sorry if you don't know the story, but you can read it. It's all it's all there in this book, and you just read it, and, and, and Mordecai is not nervous about it all, and Haman gets hung on the very gallows built for Mordecai. That is God scoffing. Oh, yeah? Yeah, keep building. Right, a little higher over there. You're, you're out of plumb there. You get want to get it right. You want to get it right, Haman? Because you're going to die on them gallows come the morning, right? This is, this is the shepherd that we have. Do not think that people that target you and you are his kid, they target you. Do not think that that goes unanswered. When the, we were singing a song that says, no weapon formed against me shall prosper, that doesn't mean that the weapon hasn't been formed. Somebody's out forming it. It just doesn't have the power they think it has. Amen. So when it says anoints my head with oil, it, the, 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 the shepherd would inspect every sheep. They come at night, going to go in the fold, and the shepherd would inspect every sheep. Why? The terrain was bad. A sheep could be injured, hurt. Oil was a way to heal a wound. It would heal a wound. It would protect the wound. You couldn't penetrate through that oil. And then also, unique thing about sheep, with flies could lay eggs in a sheep's nose. And it would, it would, 
it would drive the sheep crazy, even sometimes to the point of death. And, but the oil, just some oil around the nose would keep the flies from penetrating. It would inspect every sheep. Do you recognize that about God? He inspects you. The enemy wants us to think that he scrutinizes us. That he goes over all of us to point out all of our flaws. And yet what he's doing is he goes all over us to heal our wounds. To take care of our nicks and scratches. To protect us from other things happening. So when David's saying, and he anoints my head with oil, David would have done this practice. He would have, he would have tended to his sheep with oil as a protection. And so that's why he ends with, and as my cup overflows, my cup overflows. God, God is an overflowing God. And I don't always live like I believe that. When you look at the miracles, some of the miracles that God or that Jesus did. They were overflowing miracles, right? He did unnecessary things. When, when, when the first, um, the, way, the wedding he attends and they're out of wine and he does like 120 gallons of great wine, like they're already plastered. You know what I'm saying? I mean, say, it, it says that. It says, well, oh, hey, you know, uh, usually the, 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 the family brings out the, the cheap stuff after the, the good stuff. You bring in the good stuff after the cheap stuff, right? You only bring out the cheap stuff after the good stuff when they can't tell the difference. <laughs> Do you think they drank all 120 gallons of that wine? At, no. He just, oh, here, well, if I'm doing it. He feeds 5,000. He tells the disciples, go collect what's left. They come back with a basket each. He's an overflowing God. David is sitting on a reflection. You don't always recognize that in the moment. David, let's, let's, let's love the fact that David is looking back over the course of his life, a life that he could have characterized as hard, unfair. Lord, you're the one who put me in this place, and yet this man's trying to kill me. He could, have, he could have identified his life in so many different ways. And yet, in this psalm, he looks back over and looks at, looks at that shepherd, man. And he just really lays it all out of how protected and cared for and known he was by that shepherd. And how the shepherd has overflowed on him. Here's the last piece. So, team, you can come on up. There is freedom from future uncertainty and God dependence. But he ends with, my shepherd follows me. Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Surely your goodness and love will follow me. Another chasing and a pursuit word. Um, it is very much connected to refreshing and restoring this following. He follows me. He restores me. He chases me. He chases me down. Too many, the, the reason why I listed this as a fear of uncertainty is too many people live in this middle, this uncertainty, uncertainty of life, uncertainty for my future. Um, I don't know what I'm going to do next. I don't know what I'm going to do if this happens. Um, and we find ourselves living in uncertain times. What will happen to me? What will tomorrow hold? What will the end of my life look like? 
And a follower of Christ can have certainty in the goodness and love of God wherever those lead us. So it turns out that freedom is a choice. It's a choice because it's already been paid for on the cross. So it comes down to what, we, what will we declare? We can choose the freedom that comes in dependence on Christ or we can choose the anxiousness, the fear, and the uncertainty that comes from self-dependence. I've told you for years and years, this is the anti-self-help book. The number one thing this thing tells you is you can't help yourself. You can try, but it only will take you as far as you can take you all the time. True freedom is dependence. And everything in our world tells us true freedom is independence. And that is the exact opposite of what Bible teaches. So that's why when you're busy chasing some dream to be independent and self-sufficient, it will always leave you empty and longing because that's not who and what you were created for. We were created to chase dependence. Dependence on the one who has everything. And I've just seen it just too many times in my life. I'll take what he has better than what I can get any day. Any day. Salvation is the first time choice of freedom. And then there are decisions of freedom that you have to make daily and situationally. Do you understand that? That we don't get away with only being able to declare this one time. You got to get into a habit of declaring it every time. No, I'm free. No, I'm free. Good argument there but I'm free. Yeah, should be more intimidated by this situation than I am, but I'm not. Why? I'm free. And the more that you will identify the lies that enter your head as lies and not entertain them as the potential of being true, and you speak the truth, even though you don't fully know all of that truth, right? Because you can know you, what you know about God in that moment. When you hear that lie, what you know about God is enough in that moment. So would you please exercise what you know about God in that moment against the lies that you hear? The enemy wants to lead you in one direction. God chases after us and turns us around. He refreshes us. Everything in our world today tells us to chase after the stuff that we want to put in front of us. And I'm just telling you, whether you catch it or not, it will not do what you're looking for it to do. And that's for the follower of Christ and the person who's yet to decide that Jesus is real. But we have to declare it every day. Psalm 23 is a freedom declaration. It is a freedom declaration. I will always read it in a comforting cadence tone, but I'm telling you, I'm gonna read it a lot more as a very, a very declarative of freedom tone. I am free from all of these things, anxiousness and fear and uncertainty because of he's my shepherd. So here's the declaration. God is your personal shepherd. God provides for you. God restores you. God guides you. God guards you. God oversees and overflows for you. And God pursues you with his goodness and love. Can anyone say amen to that? So I want you to stand with me. We're going to read this psalm together. And we're not reading it like we're in a hospital room. All right? And I want you to read it. And I want you to match. I want you to match my energy. It's going to be on the screen. Ready? Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads 
leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right path for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. We hope you were encouraged and challenged by today's message. Again, to learn more about Gateway Franklin Church, find us online at gatewayfranklin.com. Thanks for joining us today.